recorded live. This is an interactive, interactive. interactive podcast designed for audience participation. Come talk, 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 text chat, or listen live at TalkShoe.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Generally Speaking About the Church. My name is Cliff Ravenscraft, and this is a podcast production of the Generally Speaking Podcast Network, and you can always find us on the web at www.generallyspeakingpodcast.com. Now, uh, today I am going to bring to you a very special episode of About the Church, in that it's not going to be just me talking a whole lot. Yay, I I can hear you out there. Anyway, um, I wanted to share with you an interview that I came across out on another podcast that was done with George Barna. Yes, the author of Revolution, the book that I just finished covering in the last four episodes of About the Church in a series called Why I Hate the Church. Now, if you have not heard that and just even the idea of Cliff doing a series called Why I Hate the Church, if you're wondering what that's all about, just go to the website, click on the show notes for About the Church, and you'll uh, I'll point you to the very first episode, part one of Generally Speaking's About the Church's podcast series, Why I Hate the Church. In fact, I'll go there now real quick. I'm going to generallyspeakingpodcast.com. I'm clicking in the show notes section on uh, About the Church. Here we go. And it would be episode number 14. So I strongly encourage you to go back to episode number 14 of this podcast and listen through. In fact, the very last episode I did was part four of Why I Hate the Church, and I had mentioned that it would really be the end of that series. But today, I listened to this um, interview with George Barna, and I thought, you know, this is the perfect topper or the perfect end for this series that I've done. And I think it, it would be good for the author of revolution to kind of speak to some of the questions that are out there so that he so you get a more than just cliff's tainted view of everything of how i read into it and let you hear from him himself now one of the things i want to clear up right away is that i am using this interview without permission and i i the one thing is is that it was uh, put together by a christian organization known as catalyst conference and that's c-a-t-a-l-y yeah s-t and uh, you can find this website or this uh, podcast called the Co- the Catalyst Podcast at www.catalystspace.com. And every month they put out two episodes, and they interview influential leaders within the um, Christian Church. And if you have not listened to the Catalyst Podcast, I encourage you strongly encourage you to go and subscribe to that show and listen to uh, the the leaders talk about where the future of the church uh, is is headed and and it is definitely inspiring and I have gone to several of the catalyst conferences that they hold where these leaders come and speak to 50 and 60,000 people and it's those have been life-changing experiences and they've been a catalyst of a lot of change in my own personal life 
So uh, yeah, definitely want to encourage you to go to CatalystSpace.com and subscribe to the Catalyst Podcast. And I figured rather than ask you guys just to go and find that, I would go ahead and include the length of the interview from that podcast inside of this one because I figured, you know, you just would hear it. And my hopes is that this will just further give exposure to the Catalyst Conference, uh, the, the leadership that goes on there, the, the work that they're doing. And the, the founder of that, I believe his name is Gabe Lyons. Now, I've never met Gabe personally, but I have definitely seen him at the Catalyst Conference, heard him speak, and, and he has a, a passionate heart for, for ministry and helping future leaders um, grow spiritually and, and stay ahead of the curve when it comes to the cultural needs of our society, especially for the church in, the, in, Northern, Kentucky, in Northern Kentucky, in North America. Oh, man. I'm getting ready to record another podcast in an hour and 15 minutes. And so I just wanted to get this thing done before I did that. And so I'm a little rushed, if you can't tell. So anyway, um, this podcast that I, I'm about to play is an interview where Gabe Lyons in, sat down with George Barna to ask questions about the book Revolution, which I've just reviewed. Now, at the end of my series, I had mentioned that I wasn't too all that crazy about the book overall. I felt like he said the same thing over and over again through multiple chapters. But what he said was very much thought-provoking, and it kind of touched on a lot of things that I've noticed and felt in my own life, and it did cause me to rethink some issues, and I'm very glad that I wrote, read the book. However, one of the questions that he never addressed in his pod, or in his book was that um, there is no question, at, or there's no answer to the to the idea or the concept that God had designed a leadership structure of some type for a local congregation or community of believers known as pastors, elders, and deacons that's clearly laid out in Scripture, but nowhere in his book does he ever uh, suggest how that might fit into something other than the local church. And um, outside of that, I'm not saying that because he can't, he hasn't addressed that, that there's not an answer. Or, or anything like that, but it's, it's just that it's not answered. And I listened closely in this interview, and I'm glad that I read the book before I heard the interview, but one of the things Gabe Lyons did say is he says, you know, I'm going to ask him some hard questions that most people don't ask, but I was waiting for that question, and that question never came up. With all that said, I still believe George Barna has a very powerful message for the church and um, I, I, I believe it's important to continue to investigate this, and I wanted to share with you what the content of this interview brought out. So I'm going to go ahead and play that for you now. Here is uh, Gabe Lyons from the Catalyst Conference, who is going to be interviewing George Barna, the author of the book Revolution. Here you go. Well, George, thanks for being with us today for the podcast, man. It's great to be with you again. It's good to be here. Thanks also, just on behalf of all our church leaders, just for leading. I mean, just for being out there doing some things that are pressing the edge. I know your your latest book, The Revolution, has caught a lot of press and a lot of discussion, and you've prompted a ton of things. And that's what Catalyst is all about, is getting people talking and also getting them moving and doing some positive things. And you just model that really well. So, of course, we're going to get into that. Questions sure. about that, but all kinds of other things. But why don't you first just, you know, maybe... For those that don't know your story beyond just they think of Barna as like Barna Research, I mean, 
you're a human being too. So <laughs> share with us, share with us a little bit of your journey to where you're at today. I actually got started in all of this by managing political campaigns, people running for Congress, state legislature, mayor, and so forth, and realized that wasn't what I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing. I really enjoyed doing the polling for the campaigns and the speech writing. So the writing and the research were the two things that got me going. Went back to grad school, got some degrees in that, and then moved out to Los Angeles and worked with one of the largest media testing firms in the country and spent time there testing movies for the major studios, programs for the major networks. We tested about 3,000 commercials a year before they ever went on air. Learned a lot there. And while I was working at that company, there was a Christian media management company that came in the doors. They said, look, you guys are like the kingpins in testing media. We represent this group of televangelists. Can you test our stuff and figure out what works and what doesn't work? Wow. Well, there were no other Christians in this huge company, you know, so they had all these conversations going back and forth and they weren't really connecting finally on what probably would have been their last time together. My boss, the senior VP of the company, said to the chairman of the company, hey, wait a minute, that Barna kid, he said he's a Christian, get him in here, maybe he can translate, you know. (laughs) Because I spoke both, you know, researchees and Christianese. And so I uh, came in there, and that's actually where I started using a lot of my talents, you know, in the Christian arena. But I tell you, of all the things that I wind up doing, I love writing. Writing is a great thing, it forces me to think more deeply about things. We live in a culture where people don't think deeply. And so it's good to have that discipline almost forced upon me. Because otherwise, I'm like everybody else. I'm in the stream, you know, flowing down and. Things are happening all around me, and I'm just trying to keep my head above water. But the writing is really good, and the conversations that it sparks with other people is really stimulating, too. Yeah, well, your recent book, Revolution, certainly has put some new framework around the language people are using as they're thinking about the church and how it's moving forward. And your research kind of showed over the next 20 years what some of the predictions are for the church. Would you just describe kind of the thesis of Revolution for those who haven't read it? Yeah, it's really pretty simple. It was, again, going back to my own journey, based out of my own frustration of working with conventional churches around the country, whether they thought of themselves as seeker churches, cutting-edge churches, emergent churches, didn't matter, traditional churches, mainline churches, evangelical. We worked with all of those, but my frustration was based on the fact that after having poured more than 20 years into trying to help them to understand people's needs and to speak to those needs more effectively, I didn't see that there was much happening in the way of transformation in people's lives. So I came back after one of our seminar tours where we just spent, I don't know, probably eight months on the road, two or three days a week doing seminars in a market, having all the pastors that we could get from a 100, 150-mile radius come in, and we'd download the research for them. Came back, and I said, that's it. You know, I, I can't do this. Let's figure out, is anybody's life actually being transformed? So we embarked on a research process to try to figure that out. What we discovered is that God is still in the transformational business, and there are literally millions of people's lives that are being transformed by him every year. But for the most part, it's happening outside the framework of the conventional church. It's happening through the personal connections, the relationships that they have in smaller groups of people where they share some other kind of affinity whether it's a 12-step group or a mother's group or a homeschool group, whatever it may be. 
but Christ becomes the centerpiece of those relationships. And it was through all of that where they were pursuing their affinity and that relationship with Christ that they actually were having real transformational experiences. And as we started to study those people to figure out, so what's their journey like? We learned a lot about the fact that the conventional church doesn't understand that process and literally drove and is continuing to drive millions of people out the back door and will think that when those people go out the back door, they're walking away from Christ, when in point of fact, they're trying to walk to him and found that the conventional church experience was actually impeding their progress and having a deeper relationship. Revolutionaries, this group of people I'm talking about, are people who say, God must be first in my life. I'll do what it takes to make him first. I'll go anywhere, do anything, but God has to be the centerpiece of what I'm about and where I'm going. And for a lot of these people, it means that they wind up in alternative forms of church, whether it's a house church or a cyber church or some other form. There are a lot of different forms. But it's fascinating to watch these folks because their call to action is not to go to church. It's to be the church. And what is your research showing about the next couple decades of where the church is going? Well, as we started looking at all these things, you know, back in the year 2000, as we explored how people experience and express their faith, we found that there are three or four primary ways that that happens. The dominant way in the year 2000, of course, as it still is the dominant way today, is that they experience and express their faith through a local church, a conventional church environment. In 2000, somewhere between 65 to 75 percent of our population experienced and expressed their faith in that way. About 5% experienced and expressed their faith through an alternative form of church, whether that was the house church, a cyber church, an independent worship community, whatever it might have been. Another 5% predominantly experienced it through their family, where their family became their church, and together they were trying to grow in their relationship with Christ, worship Him, and, and so forth. And then you had about another 15 to 20% that experienced and expressed their faith predominantly through interaction with the media and the arts and other cultural mechanisms. Well, that was the year 2000. As we looked at all the trends that were happening, the patterns, the journeys people were on, and tried to quantify all this, we're projecting that by the year 2025, just about 20 years from now, that market share, if you will, that the conventional church had of people experiencing expressing their faith through its mechanisms is going to be cut in about half. So, in other words, by the year 2025, we believe only about 30 to 35% of the population will be experiencing expressing their faith predominantly through a conventional church environment. A similar percentage, about 30 to 35%, will be experiencing expressing their faith through an alternative form of church, house churches, marketplace ministries, cyber churches, etc. And roughly a third, about 30% or so, will experience it predominantly through the media, the arts, and cultural mechanisms. I'm not sure that family will grow. We're expecting it to stay probably in that 5 to 10% range, not experience too much growth. It'd be great if that changed and I were wrong on that, but that's what we see happening. So there's going to be a radical, and there has already taken place, a radical reshaping of what the quote-unquote church environment looks like. So more than anything, the structures are changing, and the conventional church to lose that much market share, so to speak. Do you see that as a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it could go either way. Currently, I would say it's probably a good thing. 
And the reason for that is because that shift takes with it an enormous number of people who are now, instead of relying upon the conventional church to tell them what to do, when to do it, where to do it, and how to do it, they're taking responsibility for their own spiritual development and their own spiritual journey. And they're not willing to just sit back and be a victim of growth. They're actually being very aggressive about their own spiritual growth. Are there some conventional churches that you see today that are actually doing church in a way that you think 20 years from now it's going to be significant? They're doing it well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are two things related to that. One is that you've got some conventional churches whose leaders understand that we're operating in a very different cultural context today and that Scripture tells us we need to be relevant to our context. We ought not to make ourselves irrelevant simply because that's been our tradition or our history. And so they have really been changing the approaches that they've been taking, never changing the theology that they stand for or the beliefs that they want people to possess, the principles that they're promoting, but changing the approach that they take. The other thing that's relevant to think about is as we talk about revolutionaries, a very significant proportion of them are remaining in conventional churches. They're not all gravitating to these alternative forms of church. And that also is a very good thing because that enables many churches to be changed from the inside. Rather from the outside in, it's from the inside out. And that can be a very positive thing as well. What would your vision be for a conventional church that goes through this transition of understanding its context better? What would that church look like? What are some of the things they're involved in? How are they connecting with their people and supporting their people in their lives? Well, a lot of it has to do with how you position a person's faith in their mind and how you empower them to take control of their own spiritual development process. Rather than banging into them, you need to be here at these dates and these times and these places so you get this teaching by these individuals. The idea ought to be, who did God make you to be? What's it going to take for you to be the ultimate believer that God put you on the planet to be in terms of worship, in terms of outreach, in terms of your stewardship, in terms of your relationships, your community, how you serve, all of these things Let's figure out how did he gift you, what experiences did he provide you with, what educational insights have you gleaned along the way, what's the network of people that you know and that you trust and that you work with, and then how do we build ministry in your life so that it really maximizes you. It's not maximizing the institution because the institution isn't biblical, it's irrelevant. What matters is what are you doing with your life to honor God with every breath you've got. And you just said the institution doesn't matter. It's irrelevant, I think. And I think there's some pastors who would say, George, how could you say that? The church as an institution has been here since the first century. So how, how do you respond to that? <laughs> Very simply, I just say, well, you know, I don't mean to offend anybody by saying that. All I want to do is use Scripture as my God. And so if you can show me in Scripture that God intended the institution to be the centerpiece of what we're doing with our faith, I'm on it. You know, but if you can't show it to me, and by the way— asterisk, I've looked, I can't find it. I have nothing against institutions. There are a lot of great institutions, and and there are a lot of great conventional churches. I'm not anti-church in any way, shape, or form. I just happen to be so pro-God, so pro-Christ, so pro-kingdom. All I want to do is see that it happens the way that God wants it to happen. Frankly, as I read scripture, God doesn't care about our methods. What he cares about is our hearts. And so if I can come up with an approach, if you can come up with a strategy, if somebody else comes up with an organization that facilitates being all that God made them to be, I'm all for it. 
It's, yeah. it, it doesn't matter. What I'm saying by the institution is irrelevant is that we can't get hung up on saying, but we can't change in that way because that's not the way it's been. doesn't matter. Yeah, do you think some of the negative criticisms or pushback you've gotten has simply been just that the structure itself supports so many people right now that that feeds into this frenzy of crucifying George Barna for laying this information out? Yeah, there are a couple of things that go into it. One is that, yeah, certainly this approach is a threat to a lot of people. It could take away their livelihood. It could take away all the sources of security and comfort that they have. The other reality, though, is as I've gone through all of this, I've discovered that a lot of people are simply ignorant of what God's actually called us to do by going back to his word and taking a deep look at it. We have a lot of assumptions, and then we've also been told a lot of things by people who have been told by others, by people who were told by others, and you can't like trace back the origins. We've assumed that it, well, it must have come from Scripture because I heard it in a seminary, or I heard it from a good Bible teacher, or I heard it from yada, yada, yada. That's all well and good, but let's go back to the original book here and try to figure out, but what does God tell us to do? That's all that matters. George, I think you just have this incredible passion about this that where you've almost come alive you know, in a rebirth, so to speak, about this message. I mean, you're not just out describing data anymore. You're sort of prescribing some things and helping people move forward in this new way of thinking. You know, what's it felt like for you, and do you feel like that? Yeah, I really do. You know, as I mentioned before, I come to a place where I was just so frustrated and I didn't know what to do. You know, I, I really had a four-month block of time at the end of 2003 where as soon as we got back from the seminar tour, I just got on my knees and said, God, I quit. I can't do this anymore. I want to serve you. I want my life to be yours, but I can't see that this makes any difference at all. And I know you want to use me for something. If you can convince me this is it, I'll do it. I can't believe that this is the best you can do with me, you know, and spent the next four months just praying and praying and praying and seeking counsel from other believers about what do you think? What do you see? What do you hear? What do you feel? What's the spirit telling you? And after four months and some of this new research we had about how God was transforming lives, it started to make sense to me. It's like, yeah, you know what? I got sucked into the vortex of institutional Christianity. And that's why I'm frustrated because what I've been doing is committing myself to trying to, to build up the institution and forgetting that what I've been called to do is to build up the person of Christ in others. And so now having the opportunity to go back and do that has been huge for me. It's been huge for my family. It's been terrific for our companies because it really does get us back to the heartbeat of what ministry is about. It's not about the organization. It's about God and his people. What's the biggest misconception that people have about this whole idea and this movement, the revolution? Oh, gosh, there are so many. I think maybe the biggest is simply that it's not biblical, that the conventional church in the form that we practice it is literally located somewhere in Scripture, and therefore we've got to follow through on it. And when you ask people, can you show it to me, please? I need to see this. Help me see how God said, this is how I want you to worship me. This is where I want you to learn from me. This is how we practice fellowship. This is the only viable way for you to be a community of believers, you show it to me, I'm all over it. But until you can show it to me, my reading of this stuff is God doesn't care. What he wants is your heart. He wants your mind. He wants your soul. He wants you. And it doesn't matter where it happens or how it happens. Just give it all. Is there a period of time as this revolution 
develops that you're describing that the church in some ways and Christians in general who are trying to figure it out suffer a little bit because not enough information is known about how to form structures around it and how to kind of restructure things. Does it take a dip before it then starts to take off? For a lot of people, it's a very uncomfortable transition because what you're doing is going from the comfort of professionals providing a pod for you to sleep in to a situation where there is no professional. In fact, there's no instructor. There's no guidebook. It's you and God now. And so you've got to listen carefully to what God's telling you. You've got to have the courage to pursue the things that maybe he's telling you to do. You've got to be willing to put up with the pain and the distress of having people that have been your friends and maybe some of your spiritual colleagues now talking nasty stuff about you. But once you get to that place where you say, but I just know this is what God's calling me to do, then it's unlike anything you've ever experienced. And a lot of people, frankly, experience that in the conventional church, and that's a great thing. All I'm saying is there are a lot of people for whom their relationship with Christ cannot take off in that environment because of how God made them and their own batch of experiences and dreams and the vision he's placed in their heart, the gifts he's given to them. All of that needs a different environment in which to flourish. And so as they're willing to go through that difficulty of launching something new, eventually they do get to that point. It's like starting a new business. I'll tell you what, in the early days of a new business, it's exciting, but it's scary as all get out because you don't have money, you don't have clients, you don't have equipment, you don't have employees, you don't have squat. But you really feel like this is where you're supposed to be. And so it's an exciting time, but it's a scary time. And then you start getting all those things lined up and in place, and it gets to be incredibly exciting. What are some of the ways that you and your organization are coming around and trying to help sustain this movement? There are a number of things that we're doing, and of course, we don't do it alone. There are a lot of people that are out there in the spiritual marketplace who understand these things and are trying to bolster it from their own point of view and perspectives. You know, I go out, I speak a lot about this stuff. We've produced the book, and we've got additional books. We have a whole line of books that are coming out through Tyndale called Barnet Books, and the whole idea is to have literature that helps us to think through what does it really mean to be a follower of Christ without any of the crutches that we've typically relied upon. We have a website that right now is in its test phase, which is geared to actually developing community among the revolutionaries. We don't want it just to be a website where there's more information downloaded. We want it to be a website where people connect with others and they can dialogue about what's been your experience. You know, how can my journey grow from what you've gone through? Here are some things that I've learned that maybe would help you. What are some resources? You know, the whole shot of, you know, whatever you need in a relationship. So, I mean, those are some of the things. And, of course, behind the scenes, the stuff you never hear about and probably shouldn't are the personal meetings and conversations with conventional church leaders who are irate about the fact that, you know, I would promote revolutionary Christianity. Let's stop right there. What's that conversation like? I mean, what what are they saying and what are you saying? Well, it depends on the individual. I mean, there are a bunch of well-known leaders and teachers who take a lot of time to try to convince me that this is not a Christian approach. You know, that I'm undoing almost 2,000 years of tradition and history and 
solid experience and I'm undermining the training that many men and women have paid tens of thousands of dollars to have so they can get their degree and their credential and their position and uh, it's not fair to them and you know these are all good people and uh, you know I'm really hurting their ability to be whatever it is they thought they were going to be you know none of which to me is very convincing you know and so I try to be very polite and don't get terribly aggressive I'm not an aggressive person but when they're done I can't just sit there and say oh okay you know I mean I've got to tell them well you know that's all well and good but please let's go back to God's word and you show me where what we're doing is against God you show me where what we are doing is leading people away from Christ rather than closer to him. You tell me what I'm supposed to say to an individual who's tried so hard to fit in with a conventional church experience. They've served on the boards. They've gone to the events. They've thrown the money in the plate. They've prayed. They've supported the leadership. They've done all the right stuff. And yet it's still a place where God is not consistently present, where the goals of the place really are not goals that advance the kingdom of God, where the kinds of relationships they need and they're dying to have just are not available, where the leadership that really proposes God's vision for people, not the pastor's vision, but God's vision, is simply not present, and on and on and on. You know, we usually don't come out agreeing on stuff, but, yeah. you know, at least they hear another point of view. <laughs> well, the discussion's important. I'm curious, do you see the revolution being an American thing in that there's other nations that aren't necessarily struggling with the conventional church model as much as America might be struggling with that. And if that's the mm-hmm. case, why? When you look, for instance, at Southeast Asia, when you look at many of the African nations, when you look at some of the areas of South America and Central America, you find that this kind of revolutionary activity is the norm. As I've spoken with a lot of the leaders from there and they look at the book and you know we get to talking they're like, I can't believe you got a book out of this. This is like, you know, just this is the norm. What's the big deal here? But then when you talk with leaders in many of the other English-speaking nations, whether it would be Australia or Canada, New Zealand, you talk to the leaders of the church in Europe, this is novel thinking for them. Because, of course, they followed the American model. And unfortunately, I think we're introducing that American model in a lot of parts of Africa, perhaps partly to its detriment. But yeah, it depends on what part of the world you're looking at. There are a lot of examples across the world where revolutionary Christianity is the only brand of Christianity. And praise God for that. You know, they haven't gotten immersed in the institutionalism yet, and I pray that they continue to have an organic experience. George, what do you think you'll be doing 20 years from now? (laughs) Oh, gosh. Probably still writing, because I love to write, and I think God continues to open up opportunities for me there. I'm spending a lot of my time these days working with Good News Holdings, our other company, which is trying to apply some of the research that we have done related to what influences how people think and behave. And of course, what we found is that it's predominantly things like movies, music, television, the internet, and books that have the most dramatic impact on people's thinking and behavior. So good news is actually an attempt to try to provide a group of Christians who are professionals in those fields where we share a vision that we believe God has given to us to reclaim the arts for God. And to do it by always leading with the Word of God, trying to lead people toward having a biblical worldview, 
doing it through this whole idea of what we're calling spiritainment, which is to blend entertainment and spirituality because it's entertainment that captures people's minds and hearts and interest. But through that approach, you have the ability to bring in principles that cause people to question how they think, how they live. And so we're trying to, you know, produce movies and television programs. We've already got cellular content that's available, mobile phones. We're the forerunner, at the time being at least, in IPTV, Internet Protocol Television, which isn't available in America yet. It's big in Southeast Asia. It's growing in Europe. It'll be launched here in this country next year. It's anything you can get through the Internet on your television screen through a wireless connection. And, you know, all real-time stuff with the ability to archive it, similar to a DVR system. So, I mean, you know, we've got all of these things, plus music and traditional publishing ventures that we're putting together, trying to have a very credible and professional Christian presence in the media. I don't feel that we really have one there currently. We want it to be an integrated media company in terms of the integration of the media. So we'll see. So I think 20 years from now, I'll probably still be putting a lot of time and energy into that as well. What book are you working on right now? I just finished one called Revolutionary Parenting. That'll come out sometime in the future, I don't know, in 2007, which was interesting because we looked at revolutionaries in their 20s and went back to them. We had interviewed them previously, so that's how we knew they were revolutionaries. And we went back and said, you know, you're weird. There aren't many like you. How did you get to be this way? What happened when you were growing up? that enabled you to become someone who completely lives their life for God, where they want to be the church, not just go to church. And got a lot of information there. And then at the end of those interviews, we asked, could we interview your parents? Would you mind? And so they gave us their information about their parents. We went back, interviewed them, and got their perspective on it as well. And then we blended all this together to try to figure out, okay, so what are some of the principles that underlie the capacity for raising a true spiritual champion, a revolutionary for Christ? So that's the book. Probably the one that I'm going to start writing next will have to do with the whole process of transformation. Because churches don't study transformation. Increasingly, I'm finding that people love the concept, but they don't really know what it is. It sounds good. They think they should be doing it. But in practical terms, we don't have a good grip on it. So that's probably one of the next things that I'll be taking on. And with Barna Research now, do you guys still do research? Because, I mean, oh, yeah. I see these. there's reports coming out all the time. And, yeah. and what would you say to pastors who still just look to you guys as the leaders in helping them better understand the culture and the dynamics and the context? Well, we're continuing to try to do that. We haven't abandoned that, of course. We've simply expanded it and recognized that information in and of itself has no value. It's only when you take that information and translate it into action and from a Christian perspective, action that changes lives, that the information becomes valuable. So, yes, we still try to collect that kind of information that will help Christians of all types, pastors, staff, individual Christians, to understand the culture, to understand themselves, to understand the church at large, even the church in its conventional form, the church in these alternative forms. We're trying to take a look at all that, trying to provide as much of that insight as possible. But we're also now taking that and putting on our other hat and translating it into direct action through the movies, the television, and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, we still have every intention of trying to be a strategic partner with anybody who loves Christ. Awesome. And I must say, George, I mean, thanks for taking the time. Back when I first read the manuscript for Revolution, it was one of the truest things. 
felt like I'd read in a long time in describing the current situation that I felt like I was in and felt like a lot of friends were in and a lot of the church in general is in. And so it was great to see you just kind of process that and come out. I know it's been a a hard road in some cases because you're kind of like the prophet and and most of the pioneers who went first got shot with arrows in their back, right? So you're probably pulling a few of those out. <laughs> yes, sir. I'll show you the scars later. Yeah. yeah. So uh, so just thanks for what you're doing. It's going to be great to just follow and kind of see how the all this bears out. I share your love for the church, and, and it's obvious your heart and passion for Christ and, and just wanting his kingdom to go forward however it can. So thanks for being with us. Well, thank you. I appreciate what you guys are doing and pray that God will continue to use you because my sense is you're working with a lot of revolutionaries and they are the ones who will determine what the church of the future looks like. I'm all for what you're doing. Keep going. Well, there you have it. That's the end of the interview that Gabe Lyons did with George Barna. I hope that you've enjoyed this very special episode. And again, I, I admit that I used this interview without permission. However, I do encourage you to go check out the Catalyst podcast You can find them at CatalystSpace.com and subscribe to the Catalyst podcast there. There are tons of great authors and pastors and leaders that have been um, interviewed by that show. Uh, For example, Erwin McManus, uh, Andy Stanley, uh, let's see here, Donald Miller, uh, just to name a few. And so they always have some great content and some uh, some great things to challenge the way we think about our faith and the way we live our lives as a church. And, and I really encourage you to go check out the Catalyst podcast. And I pray that God has blessed you through maybe some things that George Barna has shared that maybe I did not convey after reading his book. And uh, if you have any feedback, I'd love to hear it. Send your feedback to cliff at ravenscraft.org, or you can give us a call at area code 859 859- Seven nine five four zero five seven. Our listener line for the Generally Speaking Podcast Network. One more time, area code eight five nine seven nine five four zero five seven. I had to think about it for just a second. Thanks for listening. God bless you, and have a great day. <laughs>